Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new developments in the Missouri education community. If you are a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public education decision maker, well, you are in the right place. Today, we are going to talk about student discipline, and that will include some of the more common issues we see, maybe uh, missteps that tend to come up for us, and just questions we frequently get about the topic. It's, I know it's a bread and butter topic, and it's normally one that you would associate with the spring of the year more than you would the beginning of the school year in most instances. But oddly enough, we've had a number of different things surface this year already that involve student discipline in a way that's not really common for most of our school years. So things like uh, students in possession of guns on school property number of things there, um, issues associated with medical marijuana, uh, issues associated with just a variety of things. And so today we thought we would talk about, you know, just a few of the areas that are coming up for us, but also common questions, uh, things that people tend to ask about as we deal with student discipline. I have asked my partner, Emily Omanhundro, to join me today to talk through the issues with student discipline. Welcome, Emily. Hello. You ready to talk about uh, student discipline and all of the wonderful things that go with it? Absolutely. All right. Don't know that we'll get to all of the wonderful things, but we'll at least try to cover a few. You know, when it comes to student discipline, Emily, one of the things that tends to be uh, maybe, I don't want to say overlooked or forgotten, but just it's hard to remember all of the processes that we're supposed to follow by law and to meet all of our constitutional requirements. And one of those that, in, at least in my experience, it tends to be overlooked is uh, what we call minimal due process. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, what that means, and maybe what we need to make sure that we're doing with each one of those incidents? Yeah. So I think, I mean, minimal due process even the name of it doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal, right? So, (laughs) um, you know, I think it's one of those things where uh, we are so, administrators are so used to dealing with student discipline issues and have their steps, their personal steps, and then, you know, kind of the best practices steps that they take that we sort of forget that this is one of the critical steps that we have to take as we are moving through the student discipline investigation, and then consequence process. So minimal due process before we assign a consequence for something um, a student does for a violation of our discipline code, we are required to provide this quote unquote minimal due process. What does that even mean? So that means that we have to notify the student of the charges, so to speak, that are against them, let them know what they've been accused of, and they need to be provided with the opportunity to respond or tell their side of the story. And the issues that we see that arise with minimal due process are that sometimes we have violations of the student code of conduct that we are so sure have occurred that we don't 
even think about getting the alleged perpetrator's side of the story. So for instance, we have lots of cameras in hallways right now. And so we could review video footage and clearly see perhaps that student A assaulted student B. And we don't really feel like we have to talk to student A about it. We maybe call the parent or call law enforcement or, you know, take those sort of next steps to remediate and address the situation or try to make things better immediately within the school environment. Or we could have a situation where a parent comes and picks a kid up before we're able to, and you know, the, the influx of cell phones and technology uh, in the school building sometimes do result in a parent responding to the school before we're even really able to talk to a child. Or if a, if a situation is severe enough, law enforcement comes before we're able to talk to a child and they remove a student. So, you know, there are certainly situations where we have an incident that we are certain has occurred, and then we haven't talked to the student, but we're proceeding with our disciplinary process and issuing that notice to to the student slash parents of the discipline that's going to be in effect, and we have not actually had the opportunity to talk to the child. So uh, what we just need to make sure is on our checklist of stuff to do is to at least provide that student with notice of what portion of the discipline code is has been violated and give them the opportunity to respond. Now sometimes we get you know calls from administrators and they say well I don't know how I'm supposed to provide minimal due process because the student says they won't talk to me or the parent won't let them speak to me or they you know refuse to write a statement and uh, the, the important thing to remember is that they're not required to respond and tell their side of the story. They just must be given that opportunity. So sometimes, and if they decline, then we've met our requirement there. So sometimes that might look like, for instance, if law enforcement pulls a student out of school and we have not had the opportunity to speak to them, that may involve us contacting the parent and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're moving forward with some discipline, but first we need to let you know, you know, this is what we believe the violation of the discipline code is. And, you know, you need to understand that your, your student has the opportunity to tell their side of the story. And if the parent or the student says, no, thanks, our lawyers, our, you know, criminal lawyer said, my kid shouldn't talk to you. Then, you know, we just need to record, make a record, I guess, of that interaction and say, provided opportunity to respond, declined, you know? You know, you've hit a lot of the points that are common confusion points for, you know, administrators as they're dealing with this stuff. But one area that I did want to hit on is, is it, are you required to tell them that when you are having that conversation with the student, tell them what they're going to be charged with, or just simply tell them what the misconduct is that has been alleged? that it has been alleged. Right. So we just need to tell them what misconduct has been alleged because we may not have decided all of the different possibilities under the discipline code that could apply, right? Um, or we might not even have talked to all of the necessary other students or adult witnesses that might know more about the situation. But if we know, for instance, that there's an allegation that an altercation occurred in the bathroom and, you know, the, a victim student is saying, you know, they 
gave me a swirly. I don't even know. You know? <laughs> but, Is that you what know, we even call them these days? I don't, I don't know. I have even no know. idea. What do they call them um, these days? Um, but, you know, we would say, um, you know, that it's a, you know, we, we have information that you had an interaction with the student in the bathroom. You know, I need you to tell me what happened in there or, you know, something like that. So we need to give them the opportunity to respond or tell, tell their side of that interaction or story. And I think that that meets the requirement. You know, one other area that uh, I've seen come up, uh, Emily, on minimal due process is when you get notice from law enforcement that there's been a Safe Schools Act violation. And it creates a question of, okay, the student, you know, engaged or at least is charged with having engaged in a crime that's going to result in, in, you know, our inability to readmit them. In those instances, are we required really to give them minimal due process? There is not an exception to providing minimal due process. Right. It's a constitutional issue, right? And right. So-, so, you know, the statute 167-171 has, you know, this explanation that no, you know, the district is not allowed to readmit or enroll a pupil when certain when the when the student has been convicted of or has been alleged like in juvenile court to have committed or if they have a petition filed against them for certain kinds of crimes and you know there's a list in the statute and we may receive notice and and, and more often than not just due to the nature of these types of crimes these are things that occur off of campus Sometimes they can occur on campus, but mostly they occur off campus. And so uh, we may not even know about this situation until we receive a letter from the juvenile office that they're required to send us that says, hey, this student has been, you know, there's been a petition filed against them in juvenile court, you know, for statutory sodomy, for instance, and, you know, we're required to let you know this. And then, you know, we get a phone call from the administrator and they say, hey, we just got this letter, what are we supposed to do? And we say, well, you know, the statute says you cannot readmit or enroll to a regular program of instruction under this circumstance. So next steps are, you know, we have to proceed with either putting them in some program of instruction that's not a regular program of instruction, like virtual or an alternative setting or something like that, or we're gonna go ahead and suspend them because we can't readmit them. And then, you know, we draft the letters that are necessary, but ultimately we do have to provide that minimal due process in some way, shape or form before we send that letter. So that is, you know, the student may be coming to school. And so if we have that opportunity, we can certainly talk to them about that. But it, sometimes they're incarcerated. Though, sometimes right? they're in, in custody. Correct. So then in that situation, you know, we're going to have to find another way to reach the student or their parent or guardian. And, and really at issue there, we're not in the minimal due process involved there is really not whether they actually committed the act, the criminal act that they're accused of. It's it, the question is whether they have, in fact, been you know, there's been a petition filed against them or a charge filed against them because it's it's the petition or the charge that triggers the discipline, the removal from the regular school environment. So 
we are not investigating whether that particular crime occurred or what the student has to say about that. And we don't need to ask them about that. We just need to let them know, hey, we received this letter. This, you know, it's notifying us that this has been filed. We're giving you the opportunity to tell us right, wrong, or otherwise, whether it is correct or not that that has been filed. That's kind of a confusing question to ask a kid. But, you know, hey, is this action pending? Yes or no? And that may be a more appropriate question for a parent or a legal guardian, but we're going to be doing that so that we can say that we provided that process instead of just rubber stamping a letter and sending it out. You you mentioned that we might get notice of uh, a Safe Schools Act violation or at least notice from juvie or somebody else that says that they've been charged or petition has been filed in juvenile court. And it there's a list under the statutes of offenses but that's not necessarily the same of the, as the list of offenses that allow us to exclude kids, right? Super confusing. Yes. So um, there My is, question or the statute? No, not your question. <laughs> yes. So the, the fact that there are two statutes about Safe Schools Act violations slash Safe Schools Act suspensions is confusing for administrators. So there's a statute that addresses certain violations that have to be reported from law enforcement or the juvenile authorities to the school and and also that the school has to report to authorities so it's kind of a both-way statute and and that list is under 16261 and there's let's see i'm looking at how many 25 different different crimes that are listed that they have to let us know about if that kid's been charged or whether a petition's been filed saying that they have committed that act. Exactly. So sometimes we will get a letter that lets us know that one of these 25 violent acts has been alleged to have been committed by a student. And so, for instance, one that we see a lot is sodomy in the second degree. And, and so we'll get a letter that says, hey, this student has been charged with sodomy in the second degree, and you need to, district, you need to know about this. And then the district calls us and says, okay, so we got this letter. I think we have to suspend them. And we say, well, no, you received that letter because the authorities are required to notify you of that. However, that is not one of the crimes that triggers that automatic requirement not to readmit a student to a regular program of instruction. Because while there are 25 of the offenses under 16261 that they have to report, there are only a handful that are under the shall not readmit or enroll, 11. There are 11 of those. So we could get a letter that says, hey, the student, you know, engaged in this, allegedly engaged in this crime, and it's not one of the ones that allows us to exclude them. So for instance, uh, sodomy in the second degree is not one thing that would allow us to exclude, automatically exclude a student. Great point. I, I, I just think that there's a lot of confusion out there because we get these notices that we can't necessarily operate off of. And they're required to give us those notices, but then there's a completely separate list that we would be allowed to operate off of. And not only 
not be it just be allowed to, but we're required to. So it's yeah, it is. And there certainly can be situations where, you know, while the statute doesn't require that we engage in some sort of exclusion from school, there may be circumstances about a crime that occurs outside of school or um, obviously if a crime occurs allegedly in school, that's a discipline matter. But there may be situations where if a crime occurs outside of school that we can take another route to engage in discipline, but that's a totally different analysis. Okay. So basically what you're, tell me if, if I'm wrong about this, but basically what you're saying is that may put us on notice that certain facts exist that would allow us to suspend uh, if certain conditions are met rather than just simply operating off of the charge that's been, that we've received notice of. That's exactly right. Yep. Okay. Well, under Safe Schools Act, one of the areas that I think there's considerable confusion involves weapons. And, you know, we've had several different instances. Uh, It's been somewhat remarkable to me. And I know this is anecdotal rather than a data point to point to, but it seems like we've had a fair number of weapons violations for the beginning of the school year. We really have. Um, And I think that, I mean, I don't, it's not necessarily a good predictor of what's going to happen next week or next semester, but I think that it's something that we need to have in the forefront of our minds, just how we have to, there are special ways that we have to deal with certain kinds of weapons coming into the school environment and uh, policy, you know, there's statutory requirements and policies. And so uh, when we have a situation like that arise, you know, we need to be knowledgeable about that as we, as we move forward with discipline. You know, one of the areas of uh, confusion that I've run into over and over again, Emily, relates to what you just said about weapons under the statutes and that term weapons and the term weapons under our policy and the ones under the statute may mandate that we do certain things but if it's a a weapon under our policy but not under the statutes we're not going to be necessarily required by law to exclude the kid for a particular period right right so So what's the what's the difference between the the quote weapons if you will, under the statute versus policy? So generally, school district policies have a broad definition of weapons in terms of what weapons are not allowed to be at school. But then, so that's kind of our big bubble of things that we're not going to bring to school. And then we also have the Safe Schools Act, which carves out a narrower definition of weapons, borrowing from federal law uh, and from state and from state criminal law about what kinds of weapons are, I would say, are serious weapons, things like firearms, knives of a certain length, blade length, projectile weapons, switchblades, that sort of thing, that the district has to have a specific policy prohibiting those types of weapons. And then the policy has to dictate that if a student brings those specific, more quote unquote, dangerous types of weapons to school, that there's going to be a specific consequence that is aligned with the law. So the law requires 
that when those dangerous weapons as defined under federal and state law come onto campus or a bus, that the district automatically implement a one calendar year suspension of that student. And then the law allows that suspension to be reduced if either the superintendent or the local board of education finds that a reduction would be appropriate. And whether that decision to reduce is made is going by the is made by the board or the superintendent policy dictates that. So some school districts allow a superintendent to have the discretion to reduce that one calendar year. Other districts policies require that that be a board decision to reduce that one calendar year on the recommendation of the superintendent. So uh, you really need to look at your board policy regarding that specific detail, but just know that when we have one of those more serious weapons come onto campus, the default is that one calendar year suspension. And then we need to go to our policy to figure out if we are inclined to reduce that, then we need to go to our policy to figure out whether that's a superintendent decision or whether that has to be a board decision. That's a great point. I think there's significant confusion about that uh, from you know, administrators and board members about who has the authority to kind of make that kind of reduction or whether it's a recommendation of reduction for those weapons comes up with, we're getting kind of close to it, but the time of year that that's uh, an issue and that tends to be around deer season, at least in some some parts of our uh, territory here. Sure. Um, <laughs> I've had this come up uh, a couple times so far this year. I want to ask you about medical marijuana for, with students and what the rules are there, uh, because I think there's confusion surrounding whether or not we can actually do anything with respect to disciplinary consequences for a student that shows up under the influence of, of marijuana and they have a medical marijuana card, just a variety of things surrounding that. Can you just talk generally about how that is supposed to work uh, if a student is uh, found to be under the influence and they have a medical marijuana card? Yeah. So first I would like to kind of take a step back from that because sure and, and talk just generally about what it even means to have a medical marijuana card in Missouri because Great. I get a lot of questions about that. So for a student or an adult to obtain a medical marijuana card, first they have to get authorization from a licensed physician. And the physician will assess them as a patient. And then there's like a list of medical conditions in the state of Missouri that would make an individual qualify for the physician to authorize the receipt of a medical marijuana card for a patient. So the physician authorizes that, but it is the state who issues the medical marijuana license, so to speak. So the physician is not necessarily recommending an amount or a type or a specific delivery method of THC. So it's not really like a prescription that you would receive. Not. That's exactly right. We're not saying 200 milligrams two times daily until symptoms dissipate. That That's not what that looks like. It, it just is a physician sort of signing off on the fact that somebody 
is telling them that they have a condition that would qualify. And then that license authorizes an individual to go to whatever dispensary they need, they can access and buy up to a maximum amount. There's no like really regulation of daily purchasing amount or intake or anything like that. But so, so this is not like a prescription where the parent would call and say, Hey, my kid needs, you know, their inhaler twice a day or as needed, here's the doctor's note. So, so I think that's a point of confusion as well, but then it's like, okay, well, if the doctor says this child needs this and then they come to school and they appear under the influence or they are in possession of it, what am I supposed to do about that? And so the important thing to remember is this is still, you know, this is still a controlled substance under federal law and all school districts uh, in the state of Missouri have requirements about controlled substances on campus under federal law. So we are not seeing and nor should we see the authorization for individuals to have medical marijuana on campus. So that is going to continue to be a disciplinary violation. So if they are in possession of marijuana, regardless of whether they have a medical card, that is that would be grounds for disciplinary action. Now, what if they don't have it on them, but they are under the influence? Well, again, we are permitted to discipline when a student is under the influence of a controlled substance at school. So we would proceed with those students just as we would with any other student in terms of investigating that, documenting the investigation, giving the minimal due process before moving forward with discipline. So, um, and we have good reasons for not wanting students under the influence of controlled substances at school. Right. Well, and what, but what about those parents that come in and, and are claiming, hey, my student has this condition or that condition? Obviously, they need this medical marijuana for that condition, you know, their condition, their physical ailment, or perhaps it's something else. How can you discipline them for doing something that they're required to do when they have, in effect, a disability that they're, uh, that's really kind of the nature of the argument that's being made by the parent? So if that's going to be the argument that is made by the parent, then we would say, well, your student, we, you know, we need to refer your student for a 504 and discuss what that looks like in the school environment. And, you know, being in possession of or under the influence of medical marijuana is not at this time considered a reason. I mean, 504 is a federal law. Marijuana is still a federally controlled substance. So that is not going to be an accommodation that we're going to be federally required to provide. But now, we're still going to kick it into that process, right? And have that individualized because, con- determination yeah. and yes. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, the thing to keep in mind there, I think, is that there may be other accommodations that we can provide for this student that don't involve bringing a controlled substance to school or being under the influence of a controlled substance that they don't have a specific clear prescription for. But that is going to look like any other 504 process. And, you know, we'll proceed through that. And I think that we may find in a lot of cases, you know, a parent may be willing to try to make that argument, that disability type argument up front. But once they realize that there is this process, you know, this legally required process for that, and we're going to 
require that they go through that, it may be a situation where they feel less compelled to, to do that. Good information. Uh, that is one that does seem to come up more and more, uh, and I'm sure it's going to increase in frequency uh, as time goes on here. But I kind of want to shift gears with you, Emily, away from particular uh, types of offenses and talk more procedurally, if you will, about what we tend to see when we do have discipline, in particular, if it's out of school suspension and that sort of thing. What kinds of procedural issues tend to come up for you uh, that you get asked about? So what we see in a number of cases would be some difficulty with having sufficient evidence of discipline violations. I know I just spent the beginning of the podcast talking about how sometimes we have great evidence, like hallway videos and that sort of thing. But there are other situations where we have a discipline investigation and we are relatively certain something happened because we had five different students tell us that they saw student A hand drugs to student B, but obviously student A and student B are denying that that happened. And we have the principal's notes of conversations with those other five witness kids, but we don't have any written statements from those students. And once the principal administers discipline, then, and maybe the principal gives a 10 day suspension and refers for long-term, then uh, if the superintendent decides to do long-term suspension and the student is wanting to appeal that long-term suspension to the board, you know, we're going back and asking, hey, where, where is our firsthand witness evidence, you know, for this drug deal that occurred? And uh, the principal says, well, here are all my notes from my conversations with kids. And we say, okay, well, do we have written statements from those witnesses? And the principal says, no, I'll go back and get those. And then none of the five students want to talk about that anymore. They don't want to write it down. They, or, or maybe they do write a statement and it's not nearly as good or as detailed as the information they originally gave to the principal or they're no, no longer willing to kind of rat out their friends. So, or they worry, are worried about retaliation for, you know, telling on, telling on their peers. And so, uh, and sometimes we have parents tell them not to answer the questions any further. Absolutely. We have parents who say, don't talk to my, you know, don't talk to my kid about this, or they're not going to give you anything. And so, uh, you know, then we're in a position where we have a long-term suspension that's been implemented and we don't have, you know, we're not able to get reliable or good information from those witness students. We don't want to call those witness students to as witnesses in a, a long-term discipline appeal hearing, because now we're really worried that they're going to change their story entirely. Perhaps they're, you know, unreliable witnesses at that point. And, you know, we're feeling a little bit uncomfortable about proceeding with discipline just based on the notes the principal took or, uh, you know, the principal's recollections of conversations with those witnesses. So I think one point to emphasize is that when we have a discipline incident that a principal, superintendent, other administrator thinks could lead to long-term suspension or that they plan to refer for long-term suspension, we need to make sure that upfront we are collecting the evidence and doing that investigation as if it is going to go to a hearing before the board, which includes getting those firsthand written statements and, you know, copies of text messages and, can, you know, making sure that we keep video of interactions, um, all that. 
so that we have that up front and we aren't kind of scrambling to go back and get it at a later date when we feel like maybe we're a little behind the eight ball. Maybe I shouldn't have made that particular <laughs> analogy, but. Get written statements. Yes, please get written statements. Got it. Well, you mentioned getting sufficient evidence, which kind of brings about the question that comes up usually in the context of maybe we have conflicting statements from only two individual students and the you know school leader is sitting there going okay is this enough do i have enough to discipline and and if it is and the way it usually gets stated to us is if it's just a he said she said then i don't have proof that's enough to discipline mm-hmm. not exactly right correct correct so i think It certainly places school administrators in an uncomfortable position, but they are in the position and they are the authority to decide whether the evidence is good enough and who they believe, whose account of something that they believe. So, and the motivations that, that students have for telling the truth or not telling the truth. And so there are plenty of situations and plenty of serious situations that only have an alleged perpetrator and an alleged victim or two individuals who were involved in the same disciplinary incident. And one is telling one side, you know, one way and one is telling the other. So yeah, the principal can certainly decide or the administrator can certainly decide who they believe and why and who's credible. So how would you, I mean, what is the quantum of proof that we need that says that, okay, this is sufficient. Right. So our quantum of proof is, do we have, is it more likely than not that this happened? So it's not a criminal standard of proof. We don't have to, we're not investigating and and prosecuting a crime here. If law enforcement wants to do that, they're certainly welcome to. But, you know, for us, it is, do we have enough evidence to show that this more likely than not occurred? And when we have that, that is going to be the standard of proof that we're using. So, and and that's also something I think that perhaps students and parents don't entirely understand because uh, this is not a criminal proceeding. Right. Let me ask you this. We know that there are different uh, levels of process that are due uh, depending on what the disciplinary consequences are, meaning specifically if it's 10 days or less, then that's something that the building leader can make that decision and obviously subject to revocation by the superintendent if the superintendent is so inclined. But there's really not an appeal right of the parent or the student to the board of education on that 10 days or less. But if it's longer than 10 days, then they have a right to appeal. I want to ask you about the 10 day because. We end up in this situation where they don't have an appeal right, but they want to talk to the board. We just want to come in and talk to them and explain our side of it. (laughs) What think you about that scenario? Well, I mean, I, we're not going to establish another level of, or we wouldn't recommend, pardon me, establishing Another level of due process, a higher level of due process for suspensions of 10 days or less, 
when that is not required by law. So, however, however, uh, most districts have mechanisms in place where members of the public are able to address the board about whatever they want. So if a parent disagrees with how something happened with their child from a disciplinary perspective, whether that's an ISS, two days of OSS, 10 days, and they want to address the board, you know, we need to really we need to really look at what mechanisms are in place for that. And first of all, I would say the parent could, the parent could certainly write to the board and tell them what they think. They could go through the process of making, uh, you know, adding an item to the agenda for a meeting to address the board. Now, most districts have some sort of process in place that before you would be able to address the board about something that you would go through the chain of command. So if you disagree with a principal's 10-day suspension, then you would address the superintendent about that before we would address the board about that through the use of placing an item on the agenda. We can't really go too much farther in terms of restricting someone's ability to address the board just from a free speech perspective and making sure that we're being content neutral when we are deciding what does and doesn't get presented to the board. But so let's say I'm the parent and I disagree with my child's 10 day suspension. I talked to the principal about it. I talked to the superintendent about it. Now I would like to address the board about it. And the district has a mechanism in place for me to place an agenda item, you know, place an agenda item up for the board meeting. So superintendent, goes ahead with the board president, adds me to close, close session as a parent so I can come in and address the board. Uh, what we don't want that to turn into is a hearing. So I can certainly go in and speak for my allotted time to the board about why I thought that it was somehow someone else's fault that my child engaged in a disciplinary violation and that they were unfairly punished. But the board, you know, we would not recommend that the board engage in any sort of back and forth or allow the parent to call witnesses or allow the parent to question the principal or allow the parent to, to engage in a dialogue with the board about that because that starts to look an awful lot like a hearing that is not required by the law. I, that's one that I struggle with because I think it, I get concerned about setting a precedent and creating this kind of uh, idea that well, anything can go before the board uh, when that's really not how our, our system is set up. But uh, sometimes we struggle through that. One last area I want to go into with you, Emily, relates to the distinction between long-term suspension and expulsion under Missouri law, at least. And, you know, Different states use that terminology differently, but sometimes we end up with some confusion, particularly by parents. Uh, what it means to be expelled versus what it means to be suspended. You want to kind of talk about that? I do. So I find the term expulsion under Missouri law before I started this work, if you would have asked me what I thought the word expulsion meant, I would have said, well, I think that means that you're out of school and you can never come back. But uh, under Missouri law, when it comes to public schools, an expulsion is technically any suspension over 180 days. So 
if we are suspending a student for one and a half years, that is considered an expulsion. School years, that is considered an expulsion. So under the law, as you noted earlier, our building administrator can do suspension up to a full 10 days. And then superintendent can do a suspension up to a full 180 days. And then anything beyond that is considered an expulsion. And a superintendent cannot choose unilaterally to expel a student. So if it is the desire of the administration to see a student be expelled, so anything more than 180 days, which would be 181 to you're never coming back, then that has to be a recommendation that the superintendent makes to the board. And then the board has to make that decision upon a hearing. And the student and the student's parent or guardian, the expulsion hearing could look identical to a long-term suspension appeal hearing. The parent or student may choose not to attend that hearing. However, the board still has to perform that function and make that decision. Can a parent waive the expulsion hearing if they want to? Yes, they certainly can. So a parent can say, when the superintendent sends the letter that says, hey, I'm long-term suspending your student for 180 days, and I am recommending to the board that your student be expelled. And then this is the time and date of the hearing before the board for this expulsion consideration. And if you would like to attend, you know, you need to let me know. If you would like to waive the hearing, you can waive the hearing. Here's a you know piece of paper that says, I understand I'm entitled to this and that this is occurring and I waive that hearing. So then in that situation, yes, the board still needs to make the decision, but we don't necessarily have to uh, square it up as the full-blown hearing type thing. We just need to make sure that the board has a sufficient amount of information to make that expulsion decision, even though a parent has waived the hearing. Any other ins and outs to long-term suspensions or expulsions that you want to cover while we're together today? Uh, I think the only the only one the only tidbit that I would have, and it really isn't about long-term suspensions. It's about it's about building level suspensions. There are a number of times when when we talk to central office admin and we're discussing a potential long-term suspension or expulsion and you know we're gathering the documentation and we've already talked about evidence but one of the things that we will ask for is a copy of the letter the 10-day suspension letter that the principal sent to the parent guardian student regarding their decision to out of school suspend a student for 10 days and then refer that to the superintendent for long-term. There are a number of circumstances where we find that that 10-day letter doesn't exist or never existed because the principal basically called a parent and said, your student's suspended for 10 days and I'm referring this to the superintendent for long-term suspension. We really need to have that 10-day suspension letter from the principal. It's part of this sort of the continuum of discipline. We present that as evidence at a long-term suspension appeal hearing. So uh, we just need documentation that we've notified them of 
what that discipline decision was, what portion of the discipline code they violated, you know, a minimal amount of facts about the suspension, what the guidelines are regarding the suspension, can't be at school events, that sort of thing. So, so we need to have that. And there, there are situations, and I know our administrators are busy, so it can be much easier to tell a parent in person or pick up the phone and say, your kid cannot come back for at least 10 days and the superintendent will be in touch with you about whether it's going to be longer. <laughs> but uh, we, we do need to have that 10-day letter. Nothing wrong with just actually having that uh, verbal notice. It's, but oh, we can do both, yeah. yeah you know. Well, thank you for that, Emily. I, we could probably go on for a day and a half about uh, different things that come up with respect to student discipline, but uh, I think we'll close it out right there at the, in the interest of time. But I do thank you for your insights. And I think they're very helpful getting into some of the frequent foibles and faux pas associated with student discipline. So, and we thank you, the listeners for taking the time today to listen at Council Insights. We hope you'll follow and share our podcast on social media and subscribe to hear upcoming episodes on current legal topics and issues related to school law. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, or you can just check us out on our website. Please just Google EdCouncil, that's E-D-E-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, all one word, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together, and thanks for listening to this edition of EdCouncil Insights.